Hi guys, so today I'm talking with uh, Michael Jahoski, and Michael is a, or Professor Michael Jahoski, my bad. Professor Ma Michael Jahoski is a humanities professor at St. Petersburg College in Florida, a Tolkien scholar and the author of the book, The Good News of the Return of the King, The Gospel in Middle Earth, which will be the central topic of discussion for us today. He has a master's degree in humanities and two bachelor's degrees, one in history and the other in classical humanities. He has spent most of his college career specializing in the, his in hit in the history, philosophy, religion, and art of the ancient Greco-Roman and Middle Eastern world and the early Italian re Renaissance. Professor Jahoski also has a podcast, Mythic Mission, where he explores J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis's understanding of myth as grand narrative and its relationship with various disciplines of the humanities from a Christian perspective. So today we're going, like I said, we're going to be talking about Michael's uh, book, and I actually will show it on the screen here. So this is the oh, awesome. front cover of the book, and it can be found on Amazon. Uh, and it's also available on Kindle and is it Whip mm -hmm. Whip and Stock is the publisher? Yeah, Whip Whip and Stock, the main imprint with Whip and Stock, I believe they've got several imprints, all of them great. Uh, yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. So you can buy it uh, at any of those places, and uh, I've read uh, Michael's book, and so I thought it was uh, really interesting. And so I guess uh, I know your story, Michael, at least as mm -hmm. much as you've told on almost any uh, podcast because I've yeah. listened to a lot of them. But uh, so I guess we could kind of start with like a little bit of background. So like, were you raised in a Christian home or, uh, and I also want to know, cause um, at least none of the ones that I listened to, like where you are now, if it's still like in between the uh, Catholic and Protestant thing or kind of where that's gotten, but I guess we could start earlier. So yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> first of all, thank you for the great introduction. And uh, I appreciate you reading my book. I know it's uh, very technical in some areas and mm -hmm. whew, it was, uh, it hurts. It hurts to think about all the research that was necessary for writing it. Yeah, so, there's like 750 footnotes in a 200 page book. Uh, uh, so. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, that's right. It's uh, it's very well researched and I had to be very careful to, uh, mm -hmm. to watch what I was saying around Tolkien scholars and, <laughs> You know, I, I would say that I'm an aspiring Tolkien scholar. Oh, okay. And, uh, certainly, you know, maybe it would be appropriate, but I, I uh, consider my day job as a humanities professor. And um, let me start with my story, kind of tell you some of the hallmarks of the story. And yes, to give some clarity on where I am with my journey of faith. Um, so first of all, uh, I was raised in kind of a nominally Christian household. You know, my my mom was Catholic. My dad was Episcopalian. And uh, we didn't really talk much about religion growing up. There was uh, there was very little conversation about uh, apologetics. I don't think I ever heard the term actually until I became an adult, <laughs> to be mm. quite honest. Um, we, we really rarely talked about anything of substance. Um, and that's just because my parents were in a, in a different place at that time in their lives. Uh, I remember fondly, <laughs> I don't remember what it was called uh, or what it's called now, but it was CCD back then. And I think it's basically basically what RCIA is. For those of you Catholics out there that are familiar with RCIA, you know, it's kind of like the training wheels for Catholics and the onboarding for becoming a Catholic. And, uh, you know, I have very fond memories of that. And my parents got a divorce 
And my mom got in a car accident after she was remarried, shortly after that, in fact, got a pacemaker she didn't need. I don't go over those details in the book. I didn't feel it was relevant. Mm. But what I noticed um, turning in, into the, uh, the dreaded millennium you know, of uh, 2000 is that my, uh, my mom was changing. And I started to see in the mornings when I'm eating my cereal that she was taking an interest in what we didn't know at the time, but was prosperity gospel religion. And I would say, oh, what's that? What are you reading? What are you listening to? And very gradually after her, after her accident, I noticed uh, very big changes in her as she became more of a you know, Christ-centered person. And it was around that same time, actually, uh, between 2000 and 2001, when my brother Chris actually started introducing me to the Lord of the Rings, which was, at the time, something I didn't connect. I didn't connect the dots. I didn't see that there was a connection between Chris introducing these to me right before the movies came out, the first movie, which was, uh, was a December of 2001. Um, so now what, 21 years later, if you can imagine, that's crazy. <laughs> and uh, that really dates me. So, you know, I was 15 going on 16 and my mom was becoming a Christian. I was attracted to her, you know, uh, newfound interests and thinking, you know, oh, wow, you know, something's definitely changing. And it was at the time, again, we didn't know what it was. We didn't know that it was prosperity gospel religion. I just assumed this is Christianity. This is, mm -hmm. this is what it is. I mean, this is what I heard nominally growing up. But, uh, you know, it wasn't, you know, familiar to me because it didn't sound like the, the bits and pieces I heard growing up. And these are some actually some unique details I don't think I've shared in, in other interviews. But um, I'll, I'll go on record as saying, in fact, I have this in one of the drafts of my preface hmm. that uh, I was actually consulting tarot cards and uh, there were online psychics at the time. I don't know if anybody remembers back uh, around that time. That was extremely popular. And hmm. um, I, I can't remember the name of the company. It was like Roomba or not Roomba. That's the, the, the little thing that drives around and on autopilot, something like that. And uh, I just thought about it the other day, actually. And I was thinking, wow, you know, I, I should have had that in there to kind of share <laughs> my story. But um, I was I was just kind of wandering and consulting all sorts of false false guides. And like I said, we didn't know it was prosperity gospel at the time. So that was but it was better than better than, you know, nothing, mm -hmm. uh, which I know is probably not the way to put it. But anyway, um, I didn't realize until at least a decade later, uh, looking back on this moment that discovering Tolkien and, uh, you know, rediscovering Christianity was was very providential. And uh, you know, I didn't really see the connection until much later. And I can go on to that next stage of the journey in a, in a second if you want. But mm -hmm. um, there's some extra details that were in uncut, uncut versions of the book, you know, yeah. that I didn't, didn't uh, include. But there you go. So I, I do have a question if you don't mind me asking, but like, no. was your uh, mom's second husband, did he become uh, religious as well? Or was it you just know, her kind of? No, I don't remember. Um, maybe nominally, again, is the word for it. Mm -hmm. I believe Tom was uh, involved in a, in a church. Uh, I was in middle school, coming coming out of middle school. And, um, you know, from what I, from what I can remember... Um, I think he might have attended church, but uh, he had some addiction problems, I recall, and uh, you know, hearing things from my mom and witnessing things on my own. So it was, it was again, not, not a perfect environment for you know, being exposed to Christianity, but you know, my mom had, had actually, after the accident, uh, this is another thing I don't say in the book, so she got married in 98, I think, and uh, we ended up, we were in Maryland at the time, we were in Silver Springs, and... Um, I think she she ended up leaving 
after because he wasn't taking care of her. And my dad mm. actually came back and helped and moved us down back to Florida where I then stayed until, and I still am in Florida. Uh, and uh, what was amazing about that is that um, I think part of that had to do with just the new direction she was taking her life and a number of other issues that are obviously personal, but uh, yeah, she ended up separating and then divorcing again and mm. um, taking a new direction. And then, yeah, it was, she was the single really towering example of faith in my life. So oh, a great debt to her for that. Mm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So you then discover Tolkien and uh, your mom time. is mm -hmm. becoming more involved in Christianity, um, albeit maybe a lackadaisical form of Christianity. But that's right. Uh, so like what what happens from there or like like what do you yeah, I guess what happens from there? I'm I'm grateful for the opportunity to actually talk about this and not rush into uh, you know the technical Tolkien stuff because this is something I wish that more people would ask me. But but I understand. I mean the the book that I wrote as an aspiring and hopeful Tolkien scholar is is a uh, is about Tolkien. But um, right. I'm happy to to pause on this because it offers me time to reflect. So yeah, mom was watching Joyce Meyer, uh, Joyce Myers and uh, Joel Osteen and you know I would see Creflo Dollar, mm. you know and yeah yeah she, yeah you remember so. Lots of controversy. So this was around 2000, 2001, as we were transitioning. And this was, our, I think, our first full year down there. I think we had arrived in, I can't remember how it corresponded with the, the, the school year, but I, I was there. So it was 2000, we got to Florida. And anyway, um, you know, Tolkien was introduced to me by my brother, Chris, who's four years older than me. And uh, my mom, you know, to her credit, um, now that we know better, um, she, she spent most of her time memorizing scripture. That mm. was one of the greatest things. I remember at least one good thing is that Joyce Myers had a, a purple book, The Power of Speaking God's Word or something like that. And it was just a collection of, of scripture with various translations, some not so good, but others, okay. And it was just scripture, you know, just scripture, but, you know, it had, didn't have any of her commentary in it. And I would see my mom diligently working on memorizing these passages and uh, with, with a, with a towel wrapped around her head in the morning, you know, with coffee and mm -hmm. just anyway um, from there um, I, I saw her kind of grow and, and she's been growing. I'm, I'm very proud of my mom. Uh, if you can't tell uh, already, <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's, she is um, she's like my wife, you know, the two greatest supporters of my life, my wife, of course, most of all. Um, but my mom, long before my wife came along, brought me to Christ again. And, uh, she has just grown into a, a very mature Christian and is there for every one of my events, you know, insists on being called by her first name. <laughs> um, so she's grown so much and she continues to grow. And I think that's important to point out. Um, I, uh, by two, I'll fast forward through my college years, the rest of high school and college, uh, and into grad school. I really, had a very hard time figuring out what it meant to be a Christian. I remember at UCF university of central Florida in Orlando at a Christian group being ha handed a clipboard and say, go out and share the gospel with people. And I'm like, I don't even know what that means. Uh, much like CS Lewis, who said, you know, I, I don't know. He says in, in several of his writings and letters, you know, I couldn't understand what it meant that somebody 2000 years ago died on the cross for me, mm -hmm. you know, and mm -hmm. he says elsewhere, provided I met this dying and rising God myth and some other culture, some other myth, I could accept it. But, in the Christian myth claiming to be history, I, I couldn't. Um, and I kind of felt like that, you know, just not comparing myself to Lewis, but with the problem of not knowing what the heck all this means. And it wasn't until about 2010. So here's the next big moment, 2010, 2011, 
2012. So those three years, but somewhere in 2010, 2011, N.T. Wright released Simply Jesus. And looking back after reading that book, I remember sitting in a bed that had, uh, at the time we had a, like a vortex in our bed and we're laying in bed at night. I'm drifting off to sleep. I'm reading his book and I'm sinking into the vortex reading it. <laughs> Sarah will laugh at this. And um, I had found it on Barnes and Noble. I was reading it. I devoured it. And then I, I look back and I think I've, I've heard this story somewhere, this story about how God became king, the way he described Jesus, the way he described him in monarchical terms, the way he just talked about the gospel was just a fresh, exciting way, but it was familiar to me. And I looked back on the last 10, 10 years or so, 10, 11 years, and I realized I'd heard the gospel first in Middle Earth and realized, well, this is this makes sense of all the times when I felt dried out, not knowing what it meant to be a Christian trying to put things together. What does it all mean? Um, believing, you know, struggling at different churches, trying to find my niche, you know, Catholic, Protestant, et cetera. I'll go into that more. Um, and then finally settling and, and realizing that I, I had to admit to myself, I enjoyed reading during that time between 2001 and 2011, roughly um, the, the Tolkien more than the Bible, because I felt that there was something of a call to adventure and something more real in Middle mm -hmm. Earth. And I wasn't, and it was because I wasn't properly understanding my Bible. I didn't have good teachers until I did. Um, and, and so I was floundering my way through this. And, and eventually I realized that this is the story the Bible is telling. Hmm. And uh, of course that all merged for me in that moment. So that's, that's the big awakening um, in around 2011 or so. Okay. Um, I was going to ask, um, so you have two bachelor's degrees and I have, yep. a I have a friend and she's thinking about uh, getting another bachelor's degree. So like, um, do you mind me asking like what your motivation was in doing another bachelor's or like, uh, like, have you felt like that's benefited you as well? <laughs> um, cause like there's some sense where it's like, you know, you've got your degree, you should just like go into workforce to go on and get a graduate degree. Right. Sure. So like, um, I don't know, is there a story behind that as well? Yeah, there is. Um, very, very succinctly. I'll tell you. So the, um, the story is I switched my major a god awful amount of times. You know, in the, I don't. I don't remember the span of time. It wasn't very long. And mm. the people at uh, I think it was Cooper Hall, if I remember correctly, were like, "Oh, you again? Sign the paper." You know, uh, you're changing your major again from technical writing English to creative writing English to no, now it's history. Oh no, now it's humanities and history. Mm. Oh no, you're back to you're going to do psychology or. And actually, um, <laughs> before that, I was I was with um, athletic medicine. This was all very early on. Okay, I had yeah. done a summer program to get in. Um, you know, and, uh, anyway, long story short, um, I was athletic medicine. I had a, a internship, I think at the RDV lined up, I had somebody had connected it for me, Sportsplex in Orlando. If I remember correctly, the name may have changed in the years. I haven't paid attention, but, um, I call, I remember calling in and saying, I'm not doing that. I'm changing my major. And what I ended up doing was, um, I found that there was at the time it's changed a lot, unfortunately, in the philosophy department, everything's been reconfigured at UCF in Orlando. Um, though I'm still in touch with faculty there, basically there was a track that was similar to what you see in graduate school. Like I have a friend who did a PhD in the literature track of humanities at, uh, was it Faulkner university, I think. And I'm like, Oh, that's neat. That's kind of how I had it at undergrad. And I could do an honors thesis, which I did on Alexander the great. So a lot of classical background, um, as you said earlier, but I, I chose classical humanities and I ended up taking by choice or I, or necessity or both. I couldn't remember enough classes and credits and also studying abroad in Rome for six weeks. And that's how I met my wife actually in an Italy mm. UF program mm. uh, through the university of Florida 
that I ended up getting enough credits for two degrees. So they sent me two diplomas and huh. I hadn't realized that. I think I had done double <laughs> major, not double degree. Okay. They're like, well, you, you earned enough. So here you go. Um, and they sent me two diplomas. One was in history. One was in classical humanities, which has changed now. So yeah, I, I didn't do it by, by choice. I just okay. took what I took, what I wanted to specialize in, you know, okay. I did everything I could took every class that I could at the time. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm sure of it. If you go back and check the records in 2004 five, <laughs> through, through eight, I know I took every class. Right. Right. Okay. No. Well, that's, yeah, I, I, I was just curious because like I said, I have this friend and she's thinking about yeah. um, getting another degree because she has a business degree right now and nice. um, is really interested in more like a liberal arts thing uh, too. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so I just, it's yeah. worth it. I mean, just for the breadth of topics that I took um, classes in, looking back recently at my transcript, I, I was like, wow, I took that class, a Hebraic thought uh, class. And I'm like, oh, I remember that lady and she had family. It was Holocaust survivors. And I remember it was such an interesting like 6 to 8.50 p.m. class. It brought back all sorts of memories. And I'm like, I'm so glad I did it. Mm. Uh, although I didn't realize in the end they'd be sending me two diplomas. So. <laughs> right. Well, um, that's yeah, a plus. I, yeah, do it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's so worth it. I, I, I never regret it. So mm, that's good to know. All yeah, right. So that's... now you're like, so like, when do you you read simply Jesus by N.T. Wright? You're starting to like make these connections between Lord of the Rings and um, the Christian story. Like, mm. where does the story go on from there? Um, like, do Ooh. you start? Uh, like, are you going to church at this time? Cause like for me, like mm -hmm. church is a big part of my life. Like I couldn't go to, I couldn't live on a Sunday without and go to church and it feel like a Sunday. Like that's just how my life has been. So like, I usually ask people about that too. So um, how's I'm that? I'm so glad that you, you did. Those are great questions. And I'm glad uh, to say that I feel the same way now. Mm, that's um, good. But I didn't, uh, yeah, through, yeah, through 2004, probably 2004, all the way through 2011, um, so what, seven years or so getting married, you know, meeting my wife, obviously getting engaged, getting married, going through college and graduate school. Um, you know, I, I drifted from church to church. I attended my, my half brother's church and his family, uh, was a Methodist church, you know, would go do my laundry at his house around the corner. He lived near UCF at the time in, in Oviedo, um, which is near, you know, it's a suburb of Orlando basically. And, um, you know went to his church, but yeah, we weren't, uh, well, at the time before I met Sarah, at least I, I wasn't part of a church. Mm -hmm. Um, but I was involved with groups on campuses here and there, mm -hmm. uh, though not the original one I mentioned with the clipboard. I just, okay. that, that was just a, a more Jehovah's witness kind of feel that I had. Mm. And, and that's not entirely charitable. I don't, let me retract that. I mean, I, I don't think that that's necessarily the way to evangelize. Mm. And I didn't appreciate the approach now that I know what I know. Uh, at the you know now looking back but they did the best that i think they could at the time but that was not for me so um with respect so yeah no church really it was unchurched um was very busy with basketball and academics especially academics and writing an undergraduate honors thesis and then you know the whole marriage thing and so we we got married at 23 i'm 30 going almost 37 this fall I'll be 37 um anyway uh, from from there, so 2012 was a seminal year for me. 2010, I actually became a, a full-time, well, I was working full-time, but I was an adjunct. Mm. Um, I had finished graduate school in 2010, 
and later in 2010 started working as an adjunct and I've been teaching at SPC since 2010, became full-time in 2012 and taught at two different campuses. And so now, um, you know, is when I started to get churched and starting then, you know, we were getting pregnant in 2013 and Sarah, it was like, we need to find a church. So Mm -hmm. probably 2012, 2013, we're like, let's lay down roots. So we did. And uh, since then, uh, at least 2012, we've been involved in various Mm -hmm. churches and now a local community church um, around the corner from us. So with very good friends and cool connections and and stuff. So So you said, um, I don't remember if this was in the book or in a number of interviews, but like Mm -hmm. that you had been teaching a class or classes at a Presbyterian church for a while. So is that the same church you're going to now or... No. So I was involved with, um, uh, I'm happy and proud to, to say their name, Northwood Presbyterian Church. We became members in 2013. We recently uh, requested to have our membership revoked because of a number of different reasons, which were settled amicably. Um, but uh, it really just wasn't for us anymore. And uh, we had you know, felt the Lord calling us in a different direction, happy for the conversations that I had there and the people that I met and the connections that I made. And we were um, very steady, consistent members from 2013 to about maybe 2019. Hmm. Um, And then the pandemic, you know, and I was doing stuff online for them. And so, you know, to about 2020 probably. uh, And then just things kind of broke apart and we had various reasons for wanting to explore. Um, We explored various churches and uh, and now we are members of, uh, or trying to become members of a local church called Clearwater Community Church. Um, which uh, we found and found it had connections with several other people we know. Um, and we're, we're very happy there. And I'm mm. very happy for our children who have a, a community to thrive. And I've been looking for something like this all my life. And mm. uh, uh, Sarah had it. a, yeah, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm really happy. And the Catholic thing, let me say this throughout this journey, you could say just in the span of the last 20 years, um, but more specifically, probably since about, I'm, I'm trying to recall, sometime before the pandemic, but we had Sarah and I had seriously considered after reading books about Rome again and Catholicism and examining so many of my own personal beliefs, which probably come closer to Catholicism, to be honest. And Mm. and that's okay. I just talked with somebody about this yesterday on my show and uh, we were saying, you know, Hey, there's a lot of people like that in the Protestant church. So I I guess I'm kind of a weird Christian in that sense. I feel Mm -hmm. so more, uh, you know, ecumenical, I guess, but, um, we, we tried returning twice to the Catholic Church. It just didn't work out. We, hmm. we disagreed with the process. And I recently saw a tweet by some Catholic, I think part of Word on Fire or something, and uh, they had hmm. said, make the onboarding easier. If somebody says, I want to be Catholic, let them, you know, hmm. invite them in. Don't put up too many barriers. Yes, we need to be exclusive. I agree. We can't just let anybody in and believe whatever they want. But I liked the, the the refreshed sort of approach to that, and uh, it was just funny that I encountered that recently. Um, but yeah, we we decided for a number of theological reasons and, and just concerns over how things are done. Even though one recent podcast I, I did, a gentleman who's Catholic said, "You'll be back." <laughs> <laughs> um, I I don't I don't know I, I doubt it, but um, I, I certainly have great respect for Catholicism. Mm-hmm. There you have it. So 
Yeah, well, that's interesting. And like now that um, Catholics and Protestants have uh, gotten over killing each other, we can maybe mm. have a better dialogue about <laughs> these things. So that's, yes. I think that that's yes. a good thing. Um, yes, and in, thank, thank goodness. Yeah, and I like this little, because like I'm kind of a part of a little bit of uh, internet community and there's a lot of diversity. Like there's a lot of people in this good. little corner and I don't know if it's in your part of the country, but I see this in like real life, not just on the internet, who are going to mm-hmm. Eastern Orthodoxy now in the United mm. States. It's yes, like, I've noticed that. It's, you know, that's an interesting thing too. So you have, it is. you know, I wonder if, you know, you had all these people go to evangelicalism because I mean, that was, it's like a cliche story. You know, I was Catholic and my faith wasn't real. <laughs> and then in the 1980s, I found the evangelical church and yes. then now I'm an actual yes. Christian. But then like their right. children are now like going back to more high church. I don't know if that's statistically yeah. proven, but it's, it seems to be is, kind though. of a trend. You're right, Colton. I, I think I think there is actually statistics that I've seen that show that a lot of people are going Anglican, Catholic, uh, Orthodox. You know, they're well, High Church Protestantism. You know, Episcopalianism, and uh, that's mm-hmm. that's a whole other can of worms. But right. Anglicanism, yeah. Um, and and then there are people who are just going straight to Catholicism, not just High Protestant Church. But mm-hmm. yeah, I do think that we are seeing people explore that. And then there's uh, I have a friend who does. Is it? I'm going to get this wrong, David. You're, you're probably listening, but Greek, Byzantine Catholic, yeah, Byzantine, Byzantine Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah I had never heard of it oh, until really? David had mentioned it to me. Yeah, uh, remarkable. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they have beautiful and, uh, services. Yes, they do. From what I've seen and, and from what I've heard from him, he was very patient and giving me lots of answers to my questions and uh, listening to my concerns and, and really helped me wrestle with the decision um, to stay where I am for the time being and uh, and to serve Christ where I am. So. Uh, yeah, yeah, I do think that's something we're seeing of a trend uh, mm-hmm. because I think people are craving more concretized versions. Maybe it's the liturgy, maybe it's the the ritual slash liturgy that people are just. I don't know. I'm I'm speaking of myself. I I needed mm-hmm. more of that groundedness and uh, that that high church feel, I guess. And so I don't know. Hard mm-hmm. to put into words, but yeah, I think we're seeing that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I guess we can move on maybe to uh, some of the central uh, thesis of your your book. And yeah, um, yeah. I don't. So I gathered this and I have it at the end of the list of questions, but it's from the Pints with Jack interview that you did a while yeah. ago. And I thought yes. this was really well put by him. But essentially, and it seemed like you agreed with what he was saying. And from reading your book, I think that it's pretty accurate. But um, Lord of the Rings is a parable. Parables are good news stories. Therefore, Lord of the Rings is good news. Would you say that like that's syllogism? Yeah, the logical syllogism. Would you say that that's a fair description of what you're laying out? Absolutely. So long as we have to qualify what a parable, what we mean by parable, and, mm-hmm. and I'll just say we'll do that. But what's very apparent to anybody who looks into biblical liturgy, um, liturgy, uh, literature. <laughs> And uh, to literary criticism and to just, you know, even also some of the theology of parable books, so even biblical theological books, um, anything in kind of the Christian academic niches that are out there, even apologetics, all subsets of kind of theology on Amazon, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But specifically having to pertain to theology and literature, the deeper you look, the more you realize that there is a long history of dialogue between allegory and parable and 
I'll spare you the history, but basically it was that for so long, many scholars feared allegory and mm-hmm. uh, wouldn't want to, didn't want to say Jesus told allegories and there, people went and branched off in different directions. And that was the concern for a while. And it, it became such that, you know, parables and allegories became distanced from each other as mutually exclusive and separate literary categories. But one of my favorite scholars, one of my favorite books to recommend to you in your audience is Klein Snodgrass's Stories with Intent. Okay. And that's one of the, the, the best books on parables. I, I could name several others. Brad Young, Craig Blomberg. Those are two other authors. Brad Young does, uh, I think, Jewish studies or the niche he works. It was like New Testament, but with, with a sort of Second Temple Judaism. I have to go look at his credentials. But Brad Young, Craig Blomberg, and then um, most importantly, Klein Snodgrass's book, Stories with Intent. And what he says, and I'll quote him pretty closely here. He says, much ink has been spilled over whether allegories and parables are completely separate, you know, uh, you know, literary genres. But um, what we can say is that, you know, th- this has just been a, a waste of time. Um, what we what often people say about, oh, what you mean when I say parable, you think a story about something else where you just extract a, a moral, simple lesson with one meaning um, is actually, you know, what we mean by allegory. And so people get confused. And what he tries to say is that, Ultimately, we have to speak of either, and even though classifications get get us into trouble, to speak of either a classification or, or collection of parables, or a collection or classification or typology, if you like, of allegories. Um, but they're the same thing. Ultimately, what what you say that allegory does, the deeper you look into parable studies, parables people say that parables do that too. So they don't work as mutually exclusive categories. They're very similar, even though the Greek words are a little different, the, as forms what you say of one can often be said of another. And what he discovered in his book and presents as an argument is that he's like, I've looked and uh, people have been trying to say, Oh no, no allegory does this and parables do that. And he's like, no, no, that's not the case. And here's the case. Another book, Gisela Kreglinger's storied revelations, another whip and stock author. Um, Who, what a, what a great book about George MacDonald primarily, but also mm-hmm. has some Lewis and Tolkien in there. Mm-hmm. And, Chapter two of her book was so such a blessing for writing my book. I, I mined it and read it. I disagreed with some things, but um, very helpful with research. I dialogued a lot with her in my book, as you can tell if, you, if you've read it and you mm-hmm. look at the footnotes. But um, she makes a distinction that it's the allegorical mode that was a problem for Tolkien. And um, this we'll get into, but... You know, there's allegory as interpretation, which is allegoresis. There's allegory as composition. There's allegorical as a mode, a kind of languaging, a way we use language. Well, what do we mean by it when you say allegory? When Tolkien said, I hate or cordially dislike is what. Yeah, yeah. I think the it's British Tolkien's way of allegory. saying hate. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. That's, that's right. I was going to go there. Um, I cordially dislike allegory in all its manifestations. That's not all he said about it in his forward to the second edition of Lord of the Rings. He said much more in his letters and in his other writings. I could go on and on about this, but I have written a book about it. Um, (laughs) But we can, with Kreglinger's insight, we can make sense and many others that what he was, what he feared, what he was concerned over was the heavy use of the allegorical mode, not allegory as a composition. And he has said on a number of occasions that just because you can find the presence of the allegorical in a work doesn't make the whole thing an allegory. So -hmm. that's just a confirmation of it right there. I think that's in his um, Pearl Sir Orfeo and Sir Gawain and the Green Knight intro, or maybe it's Beowulf and the monsters and the critics. I don't know. One of the two. And he says something like this. And I'm, I'm, 
just livid that people continue to say what Tolkien said and only cite that one line out of the forward to the second edition of Lord of the Rings and stop there. It's much mm. more complicated. So see Snodgrass. And before you go read anything, folks, about Tolkien, more about allegory, get educated about these terms. Those are two great books to start with right there besides my own. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, yes, it is a great summary that David gave on Pints with Jack. Okay. That's good to know. So, like, essentially, I guess, so you have, we have, like, a lot of these uh, different terms that, yeah. and I have them listed here. So, parable, allegory. Um, and then in the book, you use fairy story as well. And for mm -hmm. the, at least the first half, if I'm remembering correctly, it's like fairy stories or parable slash fairy story, like they're the same mm -hmm. thing and then metaphor and type. So, um, I guess like a good, I don't know, tell me if I'm wrong, but like, uh, it seems like a good place to jump off into this is to ask, is the Lord of the Rings a Christian story? And I know you've been, you know, had to talk about this a lot with all the interviews you've done, yeah. but like. So, like, what would you say to that? Because some people are going to get outraged. Of course, it's not a Christian story. And other people <laughs> like me are going to say every single story is a Christian story. Like, what do you guys like? Almost every story yeah. is a Christian story. So, like, yeah. you know, you have yeah. people with my bias and you have other people. So, like, sure. what would you say using these terms that you've laid out, um, parable, allegory, fairy story, metaphor, mm -hmm. What is the Lord of the Rings? Is it a Christian story? Is it not? <laughs> I will answer that question, and then I will promise clarity and and, and uh, succinctness on the terms, and we'll okay. do it step by step. And I'll I'll I will be more succinct. It's easy to get lost in talking about these terms, but I want to provide a nice, tight, just just the facts, ma'am, kind of approach to the terms. But before we do that, um, if that's what you want me to do next, mm -hmm. the first question, obviously, you asked. Um, is the Lord of the Rings a Christian story? Yes and no. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But but that still means yes. Okay, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> it, it's a yes and no. That's a typical Jewish answer. Okay, because the the Lord of the Rings is a Christian story, absolutely. And what is Christianity? It's a Jewish religion. It is a Jewish religion. And so to understand Christianity, we have to understand Hebraic thought. We have to understand Judaism, Second Temple Judaism. We have to understand Greco-Roman uh, classical context of Christianity, the, the fertile soil in which it, you know, nascent Christianity was born. We we have to understand all of those things. But most importantly, we have to understand Judaism and the propensity for both and logic for what, what's sometimes called block logic from some of the Hebraic uh, Christian scholars out there. Um, I'll, I'll mention some more scholars later that, that, that would be good about this. You know, A plus B equals AB. It's, it's yes and no. It's not like typical step logic or Greek logic, A plus B equals C, mm -hmm. right? Which is a very simple, hyper-simplified way of putting it. But um, that's typical Greek thought, right? It's very analytical, very propositional. Hebraic thought's not so much like that. It's more parabolic. It's it's suggestive. It's intuitive. It's, it's elusive. It's implicit. It's not in your face. And so, um, yes, my answer to the question, yes and no, but by the no, I still mean yes, <laughs> is a typical typical kind of Jewish answer. And I think Jesus would, would smile at it because, and maybe is, uh, as he's, as he's, you know, participating in this conversation, <laughs> the Holy Spirit is always here. And, uh, we, we sometimes forget that as Christians, you know, that we're talking about God as if he's far off, but he's closer to us than, mm -hmm. than anything else we can think of. So, um, getting back to the point, what I mean by this is that, um, the way that it is a Christian story, how truth Christian truth about reality is reflected in the story 
all authors, all Tolkien scholars will tell you, uh, and also those who have, have some expertise in the Bible or at least religious you know, theology, anything, will tell you that how the tr Christian truth or just how truth is reflected, it was what mattered most to Tolkien. So that's what has to do a lot with parables because parables have a very special way uh, or allegories, if you'd like to call them, and I'll establish why we could say one or the other, like Snodgrass said later, um, I'll speak of parables for, for just the moment, but we'll talk more later, that um, that how parables reflect truth is super important. And that's what mattered most to Tolkien. And so once we understand that, then we can say with great confidence, adding to that, we can look at Tolkien's letters. And he explicitly says on more than half a dozen, dozen occasions, at least, uh, in one letter, and I could find the the letter if you want, but I'll just, you know, anybody can fact check it. Uh, it's in my book. It's everywhere. Mm -hmm. But he says, um, I have deliberately, keyword, deliberately created this story out of certain religious elements. Okay, the word deliberately. Um, and then elsewhere, we can say confusingly, he says, the story is not about anything political, topical, religious, or moral. But that's not him denying the first point. It's just him saying, it's not just about one thing. It's not about World War II. It's right. not about what you think Christianity is, which was, I think, Tolkien's implicit way of saying a lot of you don't even know what Christianity is properly. And so I know what you think it means. And it's not about that. It's not just about Christian Sunday school lessons. It's much bigger than that. And so Tolkien is trying to enlarge our understanding of Christianity. And I think that was his challenge. So, no, I don't think he was denying that. Um you know, in negating or contradicting his first statement. That was his way to be what seems to be ambivalent uh, or contradictory. One Tolkien scholar called it his contrasistency, mm -hmm. you know, where he was just confusing sometimes, but he wasn't confused about these topics. I think he was, he was imitating the master, right? He was trying to keep people on their toes, but also saying, if you want the clue to how it's a Christian story, he's saying, look at the story step into the story. That's how you're going to discover that it's a Christian story. Okay. So stop asking me about, you know, what it's about. Just go read it, go step into the world. Then you'll see, because when you do that with Jesus's parables and you look at the reality sacramentally, as Jesus wants us to see, we're stepping into a whole new world and we see things as Christ does. And then we know it's a Christian story. So how the truth is reflected, how that's caught up in parable, super important. Mm -hmm. Um, so yes, it is a Christian story. And and anybody who says otherwise is is ignorant of what Tolkien said. And I think um, when we don't, and I say this in my book, when we're ignorant of what Christianity means, and I can hear people saying, well, everybody has different ideas, but that doesn't mean a proliferation of different ideas doesn't mean there's no objective truth. It's just that we have to, as a church, come to the best. That's why we have canon. That's why we have creeds and orthodoxy. We can't say all versions of Christianity are right. So approximating to a mere Christianity, once we've grasped that, then we won't be misunderstanding Tolkien. But if we have a an idol of Christianity, as a, what I allude to in my book, you're going to misunderstand how Lord of the Rings is a Christian story. Mm -hmm. If you don't understand how to think about the incarnation, you're going to be confused about how this is a Christian story. Mm -hmm. um, I could go on. But yeah, we have to bring the right um, equipment an, an open mind to this project uh, and, and do our research. So yes, it's a Christian story, hands down. Okay. So like, I guess my, like what I'm thinking now to like, I guess try to help people understand your argument who haven't read the book, um, yeah. but is like, in what way is it a Christian story? Because like, where is 
Christ in the story? Or where is God the Father? Or where mm. is, you know, where's the, you know, why do we have all these like, quote unquote, pagan elements that are in the story sure. that seem to be subverting it? And I know that you talk about, you know, there's this, um, at least if I'm remembering, right, like there's a scale of allegory, like there's the yes. conscious and intentional, right. and then there's like the metaphor, and like Tolkien goes yeah. back and forth between those two things. And I'll explain that. Yeah. Right. So like, um, I get, yeah, sure. if you could explain that, um, I think that let would me, be... let me do, let me do that first. And then I'll talk more about, um, specifically, uh, let me get rid of these terms first, right? Okay. Make okay. Short work Let's do that. People can go read the book. And then I would love to explain how, when it seems like on the surface, you know, what about this? I mean, dragons, hobbits, rings, pagan elements. I mean, clearly mm -hmm. Anglo-Saxon. I mean, come on, that's not Christian. Right. right. Although the Anglo-Saxons at one point do become Christians. Just everybody remember their history, but okay, I get it. Uh, we'll come to that second. Okay. Let's start at the top with myth. Mythos is a Greek term going back all the way back to Homer and probably before, but you know, Homer is our first, uh, you know, classical author Hesiod, uh, shortly thereafter with first example of the Greek alphabet, Phoenicians, all that we know our history. Probably mm -hmm. a lot of us do. Mm -hmm. Mythos in his very early understanding was a poetic utterance or account or story or narrative about the way things are about reality. That's the ph philosophical way of saying reality, right? Um, it is uh, more so understood as one author says, uh, James Menzies in his book, uh, true myth. He says, myths are a construct of reality and belief and a means to express what one believes individually and culturally. In other words, as I say in the book and as many other scholars repeat, ad infinitum uh, that uh, a myth can un be understood as a meta narrative or a narrated worldview. It's a person's comprehensive vision of all things, metaphysical vision, not just physics and science, but all things, which does carry some presuppositions of the supernatural with it. Yes, that we see the world as more than physical, but it's a story about all of reality. Myths are metaphysical stories. They're, they don't purport to just report on physics. Um, you know, true myths are, are all about, you know, all parts of reality. So that's what, a, that's what a myth is. I could say more. It's, um, it's a special, it can be experienced in words and in images. If, uh, as Lewis says in one of his writings off the top of my head, I can't remember which one it is. I just quote Lewis randomly and Tolkien too, and forget often where the quotes come from, but I know he said it. Um, he says, you know, it, we would, we would, um, we would experience the power of a myth, even if it were, you know, a silent film, it was just moving images and, you know, it doesn't have to be conveyed in words. So it's a concrete, special kind of concrete experience where we can um, experience and taste. Lewis says at the same time, we can taste and know, I'm sorry, is what he says. Uh, whereas most human experiences were divided and tasting and knowing are split. They're, you know, uh, they're, they're divorced, but in a good myth, this tragic dilemma of either to taste and not know or to know and not taste is reunited and good myth. We can do both. So that's myth. Um, it do, nowhere in there folks. Does it imply that it's necessarily a false narrative? It, it, myths can be false. They can be partially true and they can be true, but there's, it's a non sequitur to say because it's a myth, therefore it's false, but yes, myths can be abused. Okay. Um, next one is allegory. It's a compound Greek word like parable. And metaphor, they're all compound Greek words. Uh, ala, and then I think uh, argorio is a, a verb um, to speak in public or something. And uh, I can't remember the, the exact Greek off the top of my head, but alos <laughs> is other. And it means to speak of something, uh, anything that speaks of something else. So every word we speak can be an allegory. Uh, it's a very basic definition. 
allegory as a composition is a type of story that, uh, you know, all of its constituent parts are really about something else. But parables do that too. They're, they're word pictures. They're, they, they are pointing to a reality that needs to be seen, right? And, and language is inherently allegorical. So that's, that doesn't really tell us much. But, you know, there are fancier definitions of allegory, but, um, you know, abstract things uh, personified in concrete forms, you know, stories that have, you know, things you think of giant despair and, and uh, Pilgrim's Progress, for example. Um, yeah, that's a very cookie cutter example. Uh, I won't go into the Chronicles of Narnia because I disagree that there are always cut and dry versions like there are in Bunyan, but mm -hmm. um, that's allegory. Allegorical as a mode is a kind of languaging or a way of using language that doesn't further knowledge. It's more uh, direct and transparent to the reality that it's speaking uh, about. Um, allegorical language is, um, is, is, is very this for that, right? And so it's very clear that when, when I say this, I really mean that. Okay, so that's allegory and allegorical. Allegorical language doesn't teach us new information. It reminds us of what we already know. Um, and so it works with on the basis of convention and familiarity, allegorical language or mode. Metaphor, metaphorane means to carry over, to bear over in Greek, uh, to speak of one thing as another, kind of similar to allegory. But um, the, di the difference with metaphorical language is it works on the, the basis of two things having a um, some similarity, but also a, a special amount of dissimilarity uh, and the interanimation between the, the vehicle and the tenor, that is the image and the, um, the, the vehicle that presents it or the subject matter and the vehicle that presents it. And so you have um, metaphor is best understood. Uh, here's how Kreglinger puts it is uh, one thing speaking in terms of uh, that are suggestive of another. So it's more of a hinting an elusiveness, not a mm -hmm. this, but I really mean that. Um, and so with that, we can construct and we'll leave parable fa fairy story for the end. But we have a, in my mind and in Tolkien's mind, I feel that he spoke of a spectrum of allegories. Mm -hmm. It's very clear when you mm -hmm. read his letters. We could say a spectrum of parables. The reason why I chose allegory is because it's the Tolkien term of choice. Okay. <laughs> and I, I, I wanted to go with what he said because he never mentioned parable. But my research showed, especially from Snodgrass, that we could speak of either, and the, the classifications are not perfect, folks, either a collection of parables or a collection of allegories. I went with allegories. We have a spectrum. We might say on one end, we have what Tolkien disliked very strongly. He was very specific in letter 131, uh, conscious and intentional allegory. Elsewhere, he talks about the fatal flaw being Arthurian legends and myths. Uh, mm -hmm. Although Lewis would say those are two different things, but the Arthurian <laughs> mythology in that it had explicit moral and religious truth as it's known in the primary world. And that's the fatal flaw. That's what Tolkien said. So that's why he doesn't like those kinds of stories because it's really this, but I really mean that. And you know that I mean that. And it's very clear. And there's no teasing out. There's no joy of working it out for yourself. There's no elusiveness or suggestiveness. Mm -hmm. It's very transparent. Just go read your Bible then, right? If I'm writing a Christian story, and of course, Tolkien's sole purpose was not to just re-express or to recapitulate, excuse me, that's not a word, recapitulate the Christian story. But he says unconsciously in the revision, that's what he did. So what I will say is that, um, uh, you know, it's it's important to kind of have this spectrum in mind. So that's why he didn't like the conscious and intentional. On the other end, you have, you have um, uh, the parable. 
A parable is a form of indirect communication. It literally means to cast or throw from the side. Parabolane means to throw from the side, almost like distraction, right? Look here while I, I get you from the side. And so it's a form of indirect communication. It's a type of mythic speech. Um, and what I would say, it's a very typological type of story in that uh, it relies on images and uh, it, it association with the archetype. And this is where we get into some of your other questions. But a parable mm -hmm. makes use of images uh, or types that God has put into place in reality and picks them in such a way that have a great resemblance to the great archetype, which is Jesus. And that interaction uh, and the way that the types prefigure and are fulfilled and, uh, and you know, are fulfilled and escalate in the, in the archetype um, is what makes them such realistic stories, such Christian stories, but also such powerful stories. But they're also very suggestive, right? Any of Jesus's parables are, they bear endless rereadings like the Lord of the Rings. They, they, they can't be exhausted. Mm -hmm. And that's the power of the metaphorical mode, which mm -hmm. is, which is at in a parable, we have the metaphorical mode and the allegorical mode in a dance. Okay. And, um, and, to, and Tolkien taking a note from Jesus knew how to, to alternate between the two. And in a good parable, these allegorical correspondences that we do, we think we know what the story is about. They break down and the metaphorical mode begins to dominate. And we think of, you know, God as a King and we think, Oh, well, what kind of King? Oh, well, this kind of King or this kind of father. And we're like, Oh, that's bizarre. And that's that dissimilarity in the metaphorical mode working. And so new knowledge is generated in a parable. And then we come back to it years later. We read it again. We think, oh, I know what this means. And no, new meaning is generated. That's the power of metaphor at work, not allegorical mode, but the metaphorical mode at work in a parable. But also the power of the types. I mean, just bread or vine or wine. I mean, any of these basic things where a king or a shepherd just can generate endless meanings. And so mm -hmm. parables are very kind of sacramental story and are wrapped up in typology, you know, which I briefly also summarized there. Um, and, and that also answers your question, just since I'm on the subject about how, what makes parables real mm -hmm. is that it's the animate interanimation between the type and the archetype Jesus that, it, that the, the types in the story point to. And the, the closer those types are and approximate to the archetype, which we have to practice discernment and Gerald R. McDermott, uh, I think is, uh, yeah, Gerald McDermott um, writes a book called Everyday Glory, where he talks about the rules for knowing how to do this. Um, but that's what makes it such a deeply realistic story. The more it resembles, the more the types resemble the archetype, the more realistic the story becomes. Um, mm -hmm. And so that, that tackles all of those terms as, as briefly as I could all at once. Mm -hmm. But then one final note is just because, um, and it's like the whole book in a nutshell, but the fairy story, when you read carefully with all this background in mind, especially after you've looked into parable, uh, and then you find that one of Tolkien's good friends, Father Robert Murray, wrote an essay called Tolkien and the Art of the Parable. And then you read that. And then you come back to On Fairy Stories, then you'll see that fairy story and parable are very analogous. They're they're, I wouldn't say they're the same thing. I guess analogous is the closest word I could think. Um, they're not exactly the same, but they 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 seem to be approximating as close as possible to the same thing. They they share many of the same qualities, and they're very typological. They're very imagistic forms of storytelling, and it's very clear that Tolkien um, 
I, I think had absorbed so much from the gospels in writing about fairy stories and even gives a hint of that in his epilogue of the, of the essay. Um, and don't take my word for it. Take one of his closest friends who read drafts of the Lord of the Rings, who wrote this essay, father Robert Murray. Um, it's, uh, it's a tremendous essay. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I yeah. really, uh, appreciated your presentation there because I felt like, um, and for someone like me again, who doesn't really care for a lot of the um, the background, and maybe I should more because I already think that it's a Christian story just because of other things that I see in reality. Sure. But just having these anymore. terms laid out without all the back and forth between you know different yeah. academics, like I feel like that gave very, um, like you said, it's Oof. succinct. <laughs> It's a distinct um, presentation of those terms, and mm. I think you also answered the question of how Lord of the Rings yes. is a Christian story because it 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 goes back and forth between these different mm-hmm. modes. These modes, right? But it's also because they're profoundly typological, and so the types, the themes, the characterizations, the characters themselves, the events, the institutions, the the way that language is used. The images themselves, the exiled kings of Numenor coming to the shores of Middle-earth and founding two kingdoms of Arnor and Gondor. Tell me that does not remind you of Israel and Judah, Mm -hmm. right? Tell me that Elendil doesn't remind you of both Noah. um, This is one of Aragorn's forefathers, right? And uh, and also somewhat of uh, King David. Tell me also that the Jews, which Tolkien himself in a letter said, I do think of the Jews. I'm sorry. I do think of the dwarves like the Jews. Mm -hmm. Tell me that... uh, even with that line alone, that it doesn't beg an invitation to look deeper into how these characters, he divides up the allusions to the Christian worldview and the Christian way of seeing things and the biblical way of seeing things across many different events, themes, institutions, characters. There have been a few other authors that have written about types and uh, the Lord of the Rings. Mine is a bit more focused and um, doesn't go into the way they go into it. Every book is unique. Um, mm-hmm. But I appreciate the work that other scholars have done greatly. Um, I think Michael Haldus has written a terrific book that I, I actually discovered after I published my book. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. And I'm <laughs> happy to find it was like, oh, wow, somebody else who made me feel less crazy because he saw the same thing, <laughs> um, which is always a, just a, whew, you know. Yeah, but yeah, uh, yeah it's, it, the way he does it is it, you, you think, oh, this is just like the Bible. Oh, no, he takes it off the table. Um, and I'll never forget my my interview with Dr. Mike Kaiser. That's how he put it. He, he's like, yeah, Tolkien seems to put it on the table and then take it off and put it on the table and take it off. And I'm like, that's that's the dance. It's that alternation. It's the breakdown of the correspondences. It keeps the story fresh. It, it keeps it mysterious. But it but it's so densely Christian. It's just you have to know your types. You have to know your Bible. You have to be immersed in the, the figures and images of the bi- biblical mindset, mm-hmm. the Jewish mindset and once you are you see it as clear as day so no they're they're um tolkien says god is never absent but never named he's the Mm -hmm. real author of the lord of the rings he also says the lord of the rings is about god's sole right to divine honor as king um and yet he's never absent but he's never named so god is the main character but where is he where's the eucharist where are the where's the liturgy where where's the oh that's lembas Lembos bread, we think that's the Eucharist. Well, okay, yes, Catholic authors have pointed that out. Um, but they're not always so clear-cut. I'll admit there are some that are, you know, a little more allegorical than others. Mm-hmm. It's inevitable. Um, because, and Tolkien himself said, you know, consciously he didn't do it this way, but unconsciously in the revision he's like, oh, 
that's very Christian. Yeah. Yeah. You know, oops. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Not oops. Thank goodness. Right. And thank God he, he did because it's a tremendously beautiful book. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, it's also sad. And could I say that's another reason that makes it Christian? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Some Tolkien scholars like Ralph C. Wood, whose work I admire and respect, um, he says it's it's a sad story, and that's why it's not a Christian story some completely. Hmm. And I disagree. I think that um, that's a, precisely why it's a Christian story, that festal joy, Tim Keller says, is is incomplete in this life and uh, in, in this age, right? The, the joy that Jesus brings is partial right now. Uh, then it will be full. But people will say, oh, well, that's so depressing. That's not Christian. You know, Jesus came, he rose from the dead. He's here. He's alive. Yes, but imagers we his imagers are here we're still wreaking havoc we're they're still evil the world mm -hmm. has not been cured of its sicknesses yet so it's still a sad story the christian tolkien says in his uh essay on fairy stories must still work and die but he does so knowing that all of these all of this hard work will will be for a purpose right mm -hmm. um but uh yeah i think that's another reason why it's a christian story that's why it makes us so sad but also so hopeful it's a very messianic story um, mm -hmm. and, uh, it's got that already, but not yet component that, um, is so obviously Christian. Right. So, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like you said, like to think that it would, like, if we wanted it to be exactly like the Christian story, then we could just write out yeah. a series of propositions or Ex just like exactly. you said, just read your Bible and it wouldn't oh. be an actual, like there's, there has, there's an independence in the story, but it's also still dependent on. But exactly you know, christianity or christ or however mm -hmm. you want to put it exactly so that's right well said mm -hmm. so uh you address the mythos and then most people that watch my videos are familiar with logos so i guess we can maybe mm -hmm. jump into if you're all right with this uh jump into and you touched on this a little bit but yeah. i guess i want to ask uh some questions that are personal, like thoughts for me. Um, mm -hmm. So, like, so what do like I have written down? What do parables, fairy stories correspond to? How are they real? And what I mean by that mm -hmm. is, so like I mentioned before we started the recording, that one of the things that I'm working on most of all is this esoteric question: What is truth? And mm. um, like because if truth is only something physical or if it's only a proposition. Um, mm. And I know that you were on uh, Joel Sedeckes' show uh, mm -hmm. twice now, and I did a mm -hmm. maybe rather uncharitable video where I commented on one of his articles where he's insist insisting that truth is only a proposition, and I didn't mean anything bad by yeah. that, Joel, if he's watching. But Yeah, um, yeah. So, like, I guess, like, what, like, what is, like, in what way are... And I know maybe you just have to repeat that again for me, but like, in what way are parables true? Or in what way sure. is Lord of the Rings true? Because I definitely get that it corresponds truly to the Christian story in this allegorical, metaphorical way. But then mm -hmm. like what, like you had an episode on your podcast, Lord of the Rings or Middle Earth is more real than you think, something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. yeah. So do you, I, I don't know, do you kind of get what I'm trying to get at there? I, I do. Okay. I, I can I can say that's just such a great question. Let me say I agree with you. Um, Joel is a friend, and I respect him so mm -hmm. much. Yeah, same here. Um, but uh, I, yeah, I, he doesn't charitable. really know me, so maybe not a yeah, friend. That's, but yeah, I respect that's okay. him. Well, um, <laughs> I'll go on record for both of us and say 
I think his views are probably more capacious than that. And uh, not to say I, I can't speak for him, but I think that he would go on to that, uh, go, go elaborate further. But mm-hmm. um, as a presuppositionalist, that makes sense. I think that's his approach. I would disagree that, you know, truth is just proposition. I mean, the very definition of truth is that it's proposition or statement about fact, i.e. fact is reality, the way things are, right? Reality is what is, what it is, right? And truth is a statement about what is. So sure, that's the that's the textbook definition. I completely agree with Joel there and anybody else. Mm-hmm. That's how I would define it, that something is true, whether it corresponds meaningfully with and has, you know, the kind of purchasing power rings true of something in our uh, reality, seen or unseen. Um, but I would say it's more than that, right? Truth is image and proposition. And so let me let me take proposition out of the way. Okay. Myth, parable would be included in this, parable slash allegory slash fairy story, right? And we, we know that we can either speak of allegories or parables and that parable approximates very closely to fairy story. So let's just speak of parables and in parentheses, fairy stories, that parables as a type of mythic speech is indirect communication. And indirect communication means that it appeals to the imagination primarily and that it it presents propositional truth in a in a imagistic vehicle, an imaginative image-driven vehicle, um, and, and something more concrete. And so, yes, the proposition is there, but it's indirect. It's smuggled in. Uh, and enfolded within something imagistic, something concrete, something more uh, typological, okay? Uh, a type, by the way, typos, for those of you listening, is the Greek word, a figure, a pattern. Uh, archetypos is the original pattern, right? Archetype. And um, anyway, th- that's what that's what a, a myth slash parable is, and that's how it's true. But another way we could say how it's true, so it's the incarnation is our model for this, right? Scholars have said, many have said, that the incarnation is God's indirect communication. No one would expect God to be man. And those two things are so unlike and so like, uh, paradoxically, that this is this is a indirect way of, this is God playing hide and seek. He's hiding in plain sight. It's an indirect way of communicating. It's been said that Jesus is God's parable, right? Mm-hmm. He's written himself into the story. He's put himself as a lead character in the play. All right. Those are all mythic ways. I just said the incarnation and Lewis in one of his essays, I think is theology poetry. He says, you know, we're, we're free to try to restate the Christian religion without metaphor. But the reason we, we don't is that we can't, (laughs) we can't, we can say God entered history. That's a metaphor. God descended into time. That's a metaphor. God, you know, try, we Mm -hmm. we can't avoid speaking indirectly. This is the only way of approximating closeness to God is through metaphor. Um, mm-hmm. and so that's another way it's true, but also, as I was saying earlier, middle earth feels more real because it resonates with the archetype. Um, that is, there are types within the story that resonate very powerfully with Jesus, who is the supreme ar- archetype that draws all types to himself, all the true, the good, the beautiful. And because there's so much of the true, good and beautiful typological, typologically in embedded in middle earth that's why it's so real and that's why real forests feel more enchanted after we've walked through enchanted forests lewis says something like that right that's why peter kreft says of tolkien's world that um once we've walked through fangorn forest or lothlorien or uh mirkwood right in middle earth 
all the forests of the world feel more real, right? Because our reality is a shadow or type of the true reality. And Middle Earth seems to capture so much of that archetype mm. and um, has all the right biblical types that just resonate with that archetype and are sacramentally. Edward Pusey spoke of the sacramental union the, of the type and the archetype that's mm -hmm. so, so knit into Middle Earth that that's. And this is all very platonic too, if you haven't caught that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, it's you a, say that in your book on page thirty-one of the Kindle edition. Actually, oh, I have my, I have notes. Thanks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I you were very prepared. I have no doubt. So, um, thank you. Yeah, it's it's very platonic. Um, mm -hmm. Typology is very platonic, uh, to be honest. And and so, yeah, uh, Peter Kraft has gone on record saying that too. Is that he he even says quite quite bluntly that that's how Middle Earth is real. Is that it it, it corresponds with the platonic forms. And that's that's basically what I'm saying, but there's more philosophy involved in that. I won't sure, go there, sure. but but yeah, that's uh, that's further elaboration on your your excellent question. So um, a term that like uh, I've come to use is this term, and this is a prefiguration for what I'm about to say. But consciousness yeah. congress, like these little voices that are in my head that say things, and like a big member of my consciousness congress is the new atheist rational materialist because mm. although i don't take i don't believe that their critique is um sufficient it's like right it's a you know it's a it's a rock hard critique of christianity you oh know? yeah you know and i um so like that's one of the things that i think through and so like with one of these people would say and like a voice in my head would say okay so you're just saying that it corresponds to and i'm not trying to like um belittle the correspondence but corresponds no. to a platonic mm -hmm. form not sure. to material reality and so like we would have right. to become not a materialist first because like i can like um one person who is mm. on youtube um i don't know if you follow um new yeah. atheist people but uh rationality yeah. rules stephen woodford he has like three hundred thousand yes. subscribers on youtube you know he would yeah. say you know we love these stories we love um lord of the rings but it's because of our in I'm not saying that Christians can't be evolutionists, but it's because of our evolved ape-like uh, instincts to want the, um, you know, Franz de Waal's term, alpha male, and to, you know, in the Christian story, just embodies what our evolutionary history has, um, want, you know, adapted us for for so long, and so it's not sure. actually real. Like, would we have to be move beyond materialism, move beyond e naturalism first, in order yes. to accept what you're saying? naturalism implodes on itself. How do I know that this is all there is without assuming first that this isn't all there is? Um, and I'm sorry too, the basic understanding of evolutionary psychology that I have is that if we can't trust what our brains tell us about religion, mythology, philosophy, why is it that I can trust what my brain says about evolutionary psychology? Mm -hmm. That seems like special pleading. Um, so I have a problem with the epistemology there, if, if I'm saying that right. I think I am. And uh, I would say that naturalism has to be abandoned because I don't think any naturalist is a really thoroughgoing naturalist. <laughs> Lewis says in Miracles, to get book. to know nature, yeah, mm -hmm. you have mm -hmm. to get away from her to understand her. You're right? You have to go a little further away from her, he says, to understand her properly. That's what I meant by my first comment. How do we know that this is all there is unless we know that this isn't? How do we know we live in a box unless you've opened the lid right, and looked from the outside in? So these are some basic challenges to that. But I would also say not entirely. You don't have to completely be uh, bereft of materialism because Christians elevate matter more so than Plotinus and Plato. Plato 
you could go either way. You know, some say that he wasn't so pejorative towards matter. Plotinus certainly seemed to be. But anyway, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. neither here nor there. Plato does seem to you know, disparage the flesh a little bit, at least more so than the Bible does, uh, obviously. But uh, there's been misunderstandings there. No, I don't think that we ha- lack examples in the material world that are types. I think many material things are types. After all, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Uh, heaven and earth. So, so there is a material component, and the um, even the invisible, invisible things that are now in this present age are all shadows of the things to come. But they're still real. They're just not the very real. It's a relationship mm-hmm. of like we're we're looking at a photograph when we we want to come face to face with the real person. Our world, our present age is like a photograph. This copy form, right? Type archetype sort of relationship. No, I don't think you have to be a complete thoroughgoing, you know, uh, supernaturalist, if you will. Um, I don't think you have to throw out materialism, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I think it it doesn't hurt. I think it would be a wise decision. But no, I think that um, Peter Kreft got it right. He he said it so beautifully. If you love the Lord of the Rings, consciously love the Lord of the Rings, and I bet a lot of those <laughs> new atheist people do, mm-hmm. then you unconsciously love the Christian story. And so I don't think they realize how much of it they're affirming is so rational. And then, of course, they're assuming that reason itself is the primary guide. But reason herself tells us not to trust herself, right? We have to have something outside of reason to help us grasp it. So there's all sorts of epistemological problems I have with naturalism, materialism, etc. And so, yeah, but, but I do think it's important to point out that physical things... Real physical material things are types of the new creation as well. So to their credit, I, I think, and I think too many Christians often throw that out and we, we shouldn't do that. So, mm-hmm. so, so I guess like, um, I'll go through a little bit of what I've written here as well, which sure. would be the next one. And I think maybe we've covered some of this already. No problem. Middle, middle earth is a real place. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and this is the proposition. Middle Earth is a real place. Yeah. Okay. So it's a parable. What does it represent? And it, I guess I, I want to understand what you're saying correctly. Like it represents uh, a form or an archetype or these types that are more than our physical existence. Like that's what it mm-hmm. represents. Am I understanding you right on that? Yes. I okay. think that Middle Earth is in many ways. Although I would say one of the critics of my book got it right in saying that we want to be careful too much in saying this, but because there are flaws about Middle Earth. I mean, Tolkien had an abandoned sequel to The Lord of the Rings I write about. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there were orc games and people were going back to worshiping Sauron again, you know, mm-hmm. and remembering the old times. So so we don't want to say that Middle Earth is wholly the way things ought to be. but But it is in a sense, and another sense is that it, it has so much of the new creation of the archetypal in it that I think I would say overwhelmingly it does. Um, and so I would say um, that, uh, yes, it, it is a real place, but in the sense that it is more real, right, that, than our current reality. And so it assumes kind of a, a platonic understanding of reality, but that it, because of its resonance with the archetype, it draws us more to the way reality ought to be uh, the way that God is is making all things new and putting all enemies under his feet. You know, the last enemy to be defeated is death, 1 Corinthians 15. And, and I think that that's what we glimpse in The Lord of the Rings and that it just has 
just such powerful resonance with what the gospel proclaims and that in, in so doing it draws its power from the gospel and therefore it proclaims that same worldview that you know the world is being made anew and that's why i say that it's reality as it ought to be and there's just mm -hmm. so much of it that we you know when we walk through fangorn imaginatively we feel like we've been there but we also feel like we haven't that we we wish we could be there because it it seems so much denser than the wooded and, and you know and 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 uh, trunks uh, that we see in the forest we walk through that are so huddled together and so um again it's back to kind of the pl platonism there christian platonism but yeah i um that's what i'm kind of getting at um, but there was something else you said that I wanted to, I want to make sure I don't miss you. I'm looking at your questions too. Middle earth is a real place. Yeah. Um, it, it's a, it's a parable in the sense that it's a parabolic novel. That is what I mean by that it, to repeat some things that I said is that it reflect the way that it reflects truth as a novel is parabolic. And once we understand what a parable is and how it reflects truth. And uh, one of the things I say throughout the book is that the very form of parable is what it's trying to proclaim in, in its form, what it's trying to say in its content. That is, when we look at what a parable is and the allegorical, the metaphorical, the, the, the type, the archetype, the sacramental union, that form itself is telling us something about reality and the quality and nature of reality. And it's, and it's bringing, where, where right now the way we experience life is there's a split between subject and object and concrete and abstract, right? It's smashing down those barriers and bringing them together in a sacramental union. And so that's what I mean also by it being a real place and by it um, being more the way reality really ought to feel and ought to be and one day will be. Um, and so again, it comes down to how truth is reflected in the novel. And once we understand what a parable is and more details about what parabolic, uh, a parabolic way of, of communicating truth entails, which we've talked about, not exhaustively, of course, but um, mm -hmm. that, that then becomes more, it makes more sense. Okay. Your question, yeah, I think it's fleshed out a bit more. Okay. Yeah, so I think we, I so like you just, like the, what does it represent, what does it correspond to are kind of the same thing. And then like you just yeah. said, that it is in some ways, not in other ways, but in a lot of ways, it's the way that things ought to be. Mm -hmm. And then this is non-physical in some ways, but also physical in other ways because it's Absolutely. not, right? Okay. And well, then, yeah, I mean, it, like our own world, it represents or, or it assumes and communicates about a world that has unseen and seen, visible and invisible. And I, I guess what I meant by saying not wholly, you know, like the way things ought to be is because it's an already but not yet story. Mm -hmm. And so to get mm -hmm. the total picture of how reality ought to be, of course, we need to consider the already but also the not yet. And so I would say some I should have been clearer in my book and said that so much of the Lord of the Rings is so much of the not yet. But it's also mm -hmm. faithfully reflecting the here and now. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes it such a Christian story. That's what makes it a good news story. And that's what parables are. They're, they're good news stories. They're, they're miniature proclamations of the gospel, right? Mm -hmm. And um, anyway, yeah. So I just wanted to clarify the already not yet element there. Okay. Um, I don't know. Is there, you have this list in front of you as well. We, I do. Okay, so then yeah, I say, I, what makes it real? What do we mean by real? I feel like we already covered we, that. Unless you did. want to say anything about else about that. Um, no, I, I think I think it's great. Uh, if I could start recommending some books soon, and and um, really, I think what what ne what people need to understand Tolkien better is to read more about parable slash allegory. 
Um, you know, fairy stories wouldn't hurt too, but also to learn more about typology and uh, Plato and Christian Platonism. And so all of those topics kind of go hand in glove. And, you know, while you learn about that, you're also learning about what indirect communication or myth is. And, you know, because parable is a, is a type of mythic speech. And I think that doesn't hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, the more we learn about parable and the way truth is communicated and, and how, um, uh, you know, parables are very typological and therefore kind of we can say Plato can be a great help here Christian Platonism once we understand all those parts I think we can start understanding how there's been so much confusion I'll finish with this at least for now Mm -hmm. um, among many of the people I cite in my book that I've disagreed with respectfully um, they say well we want to say you know Lord of the Rings is a Christian story but because it doesn't have an actual Christ figure the way we have it in history it's not or because of this, it's not, or because it's a sad story, it's not. The reason they came to those, I think, false, con- or uh, I would say not false, th- those conclusions, which I disagree with, mm-hmm. is because they're looking at it from the wrong angle. They're not looking at the way the truth is communicated. And therefore, I think uh, a theology that locks, lacks excuse me, familiarity with parable would come to a conclusion like that. And that's that's got to change. Um, and I think once we we fill that in, I think other things fall into place. So that's, that's, that was my cordial disagreement with, with um, some of the scholars mm-hmm. that they cite who have written books uh-huh. about Tolkien. So uh, do you mind if I ask real quick? So like one of like you have your podcast and then your ministry mm-hmm. mythic mission, and it's like, would it be fair to say it's like an apologetics ministry? Um, yeah. So is your, if, is your approach to that? Basically you like the Lord of the Rings then, by the way that we've explained allegory parable, Lord of the Rings is a Christian story. Is it kind of like, therefore, you should like consider Christianity as true? Is that kind of how it goes? Or is it, because I guess I'm still, I'm still, it's still hard for me to grasp because in some ways, like Christianity claims to be true at a particular place in time. So just because I like the Lord sure. of the Rings and just because it corresponds to Christianity, I don't, like, does that, like, how, or how are you making the jump actively in your ministry? Or, like, how should someone like me conceptualize that jump from, yeah, Lord of the Rings corresponds to Christianity, but then, like, what makes Christianity true? Would we have to step sure. outside of this Lord of the Rings, um, uh, mm-hmm. you know, parable, all these allegory, all these things that I'm, and I'm meaning that in terms of how they correspond to one another, sure. and, like, look sure. at, you know, uh, historians evidence for the resurrection or different things mm-hmm. like that. Like, do those go along with it or like, absolutely. So yeah. I think that's a great question. So once you, you've explored the Lord of the Rings and you're, you're it's, it's mystery and sadness have struck you and the melancholy set in and you want to learn more. Uh, you'll know what I mean when you finish it folks, right <laughs> again and again and again, it, it, it does this when you want to learn more. I think what you'll realize is that, yeah, you're going to pull out into a world of traditional classical evidentialist apologetics on the one hand and imaginative apologetics on both. And the reason I say both is go back to what Lewis said. Uh, Christianity is the myth that became fact. It, it by becoming a fact, it didn't cease to be myth. That's the miracle he says in his uh, 1944 essay, myth became fact. And he goes on to explain that in much more detail. But what he's trying to say there is that yes, it's history, but it's, and that's where the evidentialist classical resurrection apologetics, all that stuff comes in. To play, mm-hmm. but my ministry is about both myth and fact, especially about myth, 
But I'm assuming that, and I've got to put out a mission statement soon that makes this clear, but <laughs> nothing I've said is heretical, I hope, and uh, you know, thoroughly grounded in history. It's an apologetics ministry. It's a, it's a series of um, you know, interviews that we do about a variety of topics that always come back to myth as a narrated worldview and how myth can enrich our understanding of the Christian faith. So that's what Mythic Mission, the podcast, is. And we're growing a new arm with some fun nerdy stuff recently um, about card games and lore and mm -hmm. apologetics yeah, over, over the table. Yeah, mm -hmm. thank you. So that's on the YouTube thing. But coming back to it, I would say, yes, you, you've got to study both the side of the myth and the fact. To understand Christianity, we know that it's it, it's it's like all the other myths. It, it's it's a man's myth. It's 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 in the sense that it's us reaching out to reality to, to perhaps God to try to make sense of the world. And it has these dying and rising God motifs that so many others have, but, but we're mistaken. It's not actually man's myth. It's God's myth. It's God reaching out and searching for us. And um, that's why Lewis says it's myth became fact. And he, he's also cueing us off to meaning that by being a myth, it it's, has universal significance and appeal and that it transcends history but it also has become particularized in history as well. So it's like saying it's really, really true, completely mm -hmm. true. It's not just like a, a normal myth, right? Which is, uh, you know, just so universal and abstract and, you know, perhaps really just for that culture or so particularized, it's both. It's really, really true. Um, and so, yes, I think we need to, um, to, to remind people that we, uh, Lewis says, we mustn't be ashamed of the mythical radiance that rests upon our theology. We have to study both. And that's what we try to do with our lay ministry. And, um, you know, yes, mm -hmm. we don't neglect the historical aspect of it. No, not at all. Okay. Okay. I just yeah. like, because like with my thinking about truth and everything, trying to think through mm -hmm. these things, because like, you know, one of the things which, so like I'm, as would be probably um, suspected, I'm influenced mm -hmm. a lot by Jordan Peterson being a young uh, guy and part of the attraction that Jordan Peterson has for the broader culture is that he's, he's kind of destroying modernity in like a soft way. Like he will say that mm -hmm. like metaphorical truth and he's not using metaphor probably in the correct technical sense is yeah, more, it might be. Yeah. yeah, I don't know, but is more true yeah, than literal yeah. truth. And so like mm -hmm. maybe that metaphorical truth is like the mythos and the literal truth is, I don't it know, is the logos, you know, it's exactly right. What he means is that it carries a surplus of meaning that it, while it's true while non-literal. That is that it, it goes beyond mere propositional factoids. It has a surplus of meaning. It, um, it, uh, it isn't just tethered to a, a specific fact. It tells us more about reality um, than just, it, it implies that reality is more than physical, in fact. That's what that, that, that means. So I think that's what he means by that it's more than, than uh, you know, it's more true. But he, I think he also means it in the sense that it's universal, that it's, it's something that speaks to us all. I mean, Aristotle said something like that in retirement where he, after all the science, you know, and all, all the empirical investigations, he felt reading the myths made him feel less alone. Or did he say more alone? Or he felt more alone, but when he read them, he felt less alone because they universalized his experience, right? Mm -hmm. He didn't feel as alone. I have to go back and get the quote, but it was very beautiful. Um, and maybe that's what Peterson is getting at. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Something okay. Like that. So, well, you've been very generous with your time. If you have your, oh. uh, we went way over. Um, yeah, no, that's okay. I, I apologize. Uh, our AC was off at the beginning. I got super hot in here and all the lights and, uh, 
and it cooled off finally and then was okay. able to um was able to 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 go this long and happily happily to do it yeah, yeah. no well, problem thank you so much so yeah. you have a, a couple of books that would be great like oh, yeah. you mentioned Clyde Snodgrass's book already yes yep Klein Snodgrass uh, stories with intent okay got that um, one mm-hmm. Peter Kreft's uh, the philosophy of Tolkien mm-hmm. such a must-have um, a great book comparing sort of the Campbellian understanding of myth Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung mm-hmm. and Sigmund Freud on the one hand with C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien is called true myth by uh, James Menzies I think and True Myth is an excellent book. Uh, highly recommended. Um, ooh, I would also say maybe, um, goodness, there's so many good ones. Uh, <laughs> Everyday Glory by mm-hmm. Gerald R. McDermott, which gives, goes into Christian Platonism, but also typology and talks about parables and the type and the archetype and all that great stuff we discussed, but I, I've got so many other great recommendations, but they're look at my bibliography folks. Um, it's a, it's a heavily researched book and I've got a very large bibliography that I recommend all of those books. Okay. Um, well, but those are some of my top choices. Well, <laughs> thank you so much, Michael, for agreeing to talk to a little all channel right. and audience Pleasure. like mine and, uh, happy to go out of your, like, a little bit out of your way, at least from what the book was mainly about to entertain oh. my curiosities. <laughs> Colton, yes, such great questions. You're a great interviewer. And uh, thank you for letting me wax um, personal for a while. And, and oh, yeah. it's not something I get an opportunity to do. Um, so thank you. I hope yeah. it, it all well, came together for you. I will say that like, so I said that I'm part of a kind of an online community and mm-hmm. a lot of people in this community have little small channels like I do. And there's a lot of uh, biography that people do before videos and like getting to know. So it's completely normal oh. for me. So yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, I hope it uh, is a blessing uh, or edifying to somebody out there in mm-hmm. some way. Yeah. Thank yeah. You. And you know, people's stories, other people relate to them and then they find resonance and like, I don't know, just like sometimes like hope, you know, in someone else's yep. story or just, I don't know. So it's always yeah. good to, if people are willing to tell their story because it yeah. can help others. So, yeah. And sometimes it's just great for us that, you know, when we're asked, uh, I have to go back and access so many old memories and mm-hmm. make sure I'm getting it right. You know, it's <laughs> not a perfect thing. So I'm going over to my head. I'm like, Oh, did I miss anything? You know, t- sometimes it's just a challenge, but it's such a good thing for us all to learn to do, to tell our story and to access those memories, however beautiful, painful, whatever. So mm-hmm. again, I fully agree. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. No problem. And, uh, yeah, so I'll probably post this next Tuesday. So sounds great. Yeah. I'll, uh, eagerly share it with, uh, with friends and family and, and fans. Okay. Uh, yeah. would you mind if I posted it in your Facebook group? Not at all. I think you're a member, aren't you? Yeah, I am. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, you should be, um, go, go right ahead. So whenever it's ready, put it out there. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Michael. Thank you, Colton. This is real, real pleasure. And uh, yeah, so. Pleasure's been mine. Yep. I hope to talk Thank to you, you again sometime. Okay. I look forward to it. Yes. All right. You have a good night. You too. Bye now. All right. Bye-bye.